of the Second Features podcast. Today we are watching Curse of the Werewolf, a Hammer film from 1961. And our special guest this month is Dr. Kieran Foster. Um, so Kieran has, uh, his PhD was on unmade films or shadow cinema, um, films which are not made, uh, were never made, um, and kind of charting the history of those, uh, which is really, really fascinating. So we'll get into that with Kieran a bit later, but um, he's also an expert on Hammer and uh, did his PhD using the uh, Hammer script archive at De Montfort University. Um, so we've got lots of interesting kind of tidbits and trivia about Hammer coming up for you today. Um, the film we've chosen, Chris of the Werewolf, isn't usually uh, canonically held up as like the best Hammer film, which I guess is good for us because we're the second features podcast. So the mm -hmm. idea is that we select things that people maybe haven't looked at that much. But it is uh, a really, really interesting film. So um, Adrian, uh, why don't you tell me what you thought of Chris of the Werewolf? What was your initial reaction? I mean, I, I love all the Hammers. Um, you know, for me, there's no such thing as a bad Hammer film. Um, so I enjoy this one. And like you said, um, technically, it, I don't think it counts as a second feature, but Curse of the Werewolf was distributed as a double bill with the film Shadow of the Cat. Mm -hmm. But I did look at the poster and they're kind of equally billed. So I'm not sure if one was a first and one was a second. But um, Okay, well, should we like... For the benefit of listeners, should we kind of talk about what the distinction is between a double feature and a second feature? Sure. I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> I don't know. Um, well, I, well, okay, I'll have a go and then you can tell me that I've got it wrong. All right, all right, go on. Tell me what you think. So I would say that a, a double feature is where you've uh, just got two films probably about the same length. Mm -hmm. I know Curse of the Werewolf and The Shadow of the Cat, both about 90 minutes. Um, so they would be packaged together. There's a there's a poster that they're on together, um, and they're sold to cinemas as a double bill from Hammer. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how I would define a double bill. Whereas a second feature, I my understanding is that it would be probably about sixty minutes long, or sort of cut down to short to be a shorter running time, and it would play before the main feature, which would be the film that people actually came to see yeah. nobody came nobody came to see the second feature they no. came to see the main <laughs> film but you'd have a whole package that would last about three hours yeah i mean that's I like yeah that's my understanding um like the uh, second feature was an actual thing that was about a one hour long kind of film and they were mm. kind of phased out by the mid 60s but essentially yeah people go to the cinema and see the b movie or the second feature and then the main film um we the podcast uses the term second features quite liberally in that mm -hmm. it's just like something that's quite niche and unknown but yeah, yeah it is a, it is a specific thing but yeah double double bills like the film two films would be sold to the distributor um, to the exhibitor like as a package and you could buy double bills from like um, Warner Pathé or you know <laughs> from mm -hmm. Hammer for yeah. your cinema um, so yeah Curse of the Werewolf was like part of a double bill mm. um, have you seen Shadow of the Cat the film it went out with I started watching it but I haven't finished it yet I've watched about half an hour in preparation for doing this but I've run out <laughs> of time to watch the rest but it's interesting because it's black and white and in sort of over the years of Hammer lore, there was always some debate as to whether Shadow of the Cat was a Hammer film or not, because in the credits, it doesn't say it's a Hammer film. Mm. Um, I think there was some kind of complicated licensing arrangement and it goes out under a different name. 
but it was definitely made by Hammer. But it's black and white, which um, they tended to reserve for their psychological thrillers rather yeah. than their gothic films. So it's kind of an interesting double bill that they would put the full colour gothic alongside um, a sort of smaller black and white psychological thriller about a scary cat. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's, I mean, what I've watched so far was good fun. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to hammer in the early 60s, isn't there? They've got mm. these black and white psychological thrillers. Um, they've got the gothic stuff. There's a few swashbucklers mm. in there. Are, yeah. Isn't there like piratey type films? Yes. And Oliver Reed went on to do one called the, he sort of starred in The Scarlet Blade about a year or so after this one. Mm. So he became, he was Hammer's young dashing hero for a few years after this film. Well, he is very dashing, to be fair. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he's, he looks good in, uh, in the tunic. Yeah. yeah. I think we can, <laughs> that is a sentiment to which we can all, which we can all agree with. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's a, he turns up in a lot of films like B movies in bit parts in the late fifties. And then like Curse of the Werewolf is his, is it his first uh, leading role? Yes, I believe so. Yeah. He'd, he'd, he'd done a couple of other hammers where he just sort of popped up for a few minutes. But yeah, after this, he had a sort of run of um, of hammer films. He did that one called The Damned. Yeah, I like that. Which is really weird. Yeah, I love it though. Yeah, sort of showing hammer being quite experimental mm. in what they were doing. And um, yeah, Pirates of Blood River, that was, a, oh, Captain Clegg. The, the Doctor Sin film, he's in that. Mm. He did one of their um, one of their other kind of psycho films, Paranoiac, mm. which is really interesting. Yeah. yeah. No, he's great. I love that. Yeah, one. he Love read. Um. So, uh, yeah, the gothic. I mean, we're kind of focusing on the more gothic stuff today, but mm. I find Curse of the Werewolf quite interesting because it's both. It's like one of those gothic horrors that links to Victorian sort of literature ish, but mm. it's also quite dramatic like it's it's got quite a a tragic storyline um mm. so yeah maybe for the benefit of listeners who haven't seen it like do you want do you want to have a go at, at summarizing what happens well, in curse of the werewolf yes i'll try i mean we should point out this is um we picked this film because we wanted to do a hammer film but also because it's a christmas themed movie and this is our december episode so this is our attempt to shoehorn in um, a christmas connection which will become apparent as I attempt to explain the plot. Well, actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to cheat and I'm going to use one of my many Hammer reference books. Okay, um, go for to it. To remind me of what actually happens in the story. So, yeah, so you mentioned about his connection with literature. This was actually adapted from a novel called The Werewolf of Paris, um, which is interesting because they had to pay for the rights. And some people in various things that I've read, they point out how strange that is for Hammer, who... If you know, they'd rather not pay for anything if they didn't have to. <laughs> and they actually were given sort of free reign with the Universal films after the success of Frankenstein, which is why they made Dracula and why they made The Mummy. So mm. I think the assumption at the time was that if they did a werewolf film, it would be a remake of The Wolfman. Mm. But instead, they went for a completely different werewolf story that they had to pay for, which seems slightly unusual. But uh, but anyway, so yes, yeah, so the film starts with a beggar and we're in a little Spanish town and there's um, a kind of evil count who has, oh, uh, he has Desmond Llewellyn as one of his servants, which I thought was fun. <laughs> Cue from James Bond. 
And uh, and this film, of course, was made after, or no, the same year. Is it the same year as Doctor No? A uh, year before, maybe. And he's like, he's a really horrible guy, and it's his wedding day, and um, he's forcing the town to celebrate his wedding. And he's getting married to this poor girl who really doesn't look very into it at all. <laughs> um, so this beggar turns up and ends up at the wedding because that, no one else will give him anything. And uh, this count whose name, oh, he's a Marquis, sorry. He makes him dance for food and for wine and he gets him drunk. And he um, he gives him, oh, I think he wants to throw him out, but his bride is trying to say, no, no, please, let's be kind to him. So he, he gives her this beggar as a wedding present. Okay, and, interesting. Which seems completely fine. <laughs> I mean, a fondue um, set would be more appropriate, but yeah, anyway. it's a little, little more practical. Mm. Um, and so the beggar gets drunk and dances around and gets some food, but then he makes the mistake of being a little bit um, lewd in his comments towards the Marquis when the Marquis decides that he's going to go to bed with his bride. And the the the... The beggar's a little bit kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink about it, um, which the Marquis is very cross about. And so he throws him in prison. And then they just leave him in prison forever. And I thought that was a little bit weird because fair enough if the Marquis might forget about him. But she's clearly forgotten about him too, which <laughs> seems a bit harsh or I don't know. Yeah, I just—I mean, maybe it's better not to pick to yeah. interrogate the plot no. <laughs> in that sense. But um, so yeah, he's thrown in—he's thrown into this cell where we're told because there's a there's a voiceover. There's this—I think this kind of gives away its literary sort of origins that they've had to use a voiceover. The voice of God just comes in occasionally to tell us what's going on. Although we then later find out that it's it's a character from later in the story telling us what's happening although he's telling us stuff that he wasn't there to see but anyway don't worry about that either <laughs> um and so anyway so this this guy is left in the cellar in the prison in the cellar and we find out that the only person who cares about him is the jailer who has a daughter who is mute and he seems to spite sort of strike up a bit of a friendship with her every time they bring food uh but then we see like I don't know, 15 years later, um, the jailer is dead and she is the only one now who still brings this guy food. But in the meantime, he's become really kind of decrepit and hairy. And I'm not sure if we're supposed to believe that if you lock a man up for all that time, he'll just naturally become very hairy. Or if he was predisposed in some way genetically whether he had some kind of wolf-like, um, yeah, history. it's not it's not entirely clear. And the mythology, no. the werewolf mythology of this film, is something we might touch upon. I think, um, yeah. But yeah, the the whole kind of friendship with the jailer's daughter. But then, of course, she, like he he kind of rapes her, doesn't he? And, yes. And dies, and then she has a kid, um, and then doesn't that that kid grows up to be Ollie Reed? Yes, and she, yeah, oh, I mean, um. It's kind of yeah. So he, she ends up getting thrown into the jail for refusing the Marquis's advances. Who's now very old and decrepit himself, um, and so that's when yeah. So then this beggar who is clearly more animal than man now he attacks her and she kills him, 
And then mm. she gets out and then she kills the Marquis as well and runs away. And then she tries to drown herself. And we, we're in classic Hammer Black Park territory here. It's very recognisable. Every time one of these Hammer films goes to the tr- goes in the trees, it's Black Park, mm-hmm. which is just behind Pinewood Studios. And she's drowning herself in the lake in Black Park when a man saves her. And that's where we find out that he is the man telling us the story. Uh, and his name is Don Alfredo. He takes her home. They find out she's pregnant. And then his maid, who's clearly superstitious, she's very afraid that this baby is going to be born on Christmas Day because that means evil things. But uh, of course he is. Yeah. So the idea of being born on Christmas Day makes you a werewolf. Um, yeah. So was Jesus a werewolf? Well, I read somewhere, some, I saw something about this and I can't remember where I read it, that the superstition about being born on Christmas Day being an evil thing is because people believed that you were pregnant for a whole year. So you must have been conceived on the previous Christmas Day, which means that your parents were not being suitably pious enough. Oh, um, why? But why would you must have been conceived a year before? Can't you have been conceived in March? (laughs) Well, don't they believed that it was a pregnancy lasted a year? So if you're born on Christmas Day. Oh, right. So despite all evidence to the contrary. (laughs) Parents were not behaving themselves the previous Christmas Day. That's interesting. So it is actually a a thing. It is actually a mythological thing. Apparently so. Um, But I, I mean, don't quote me on that. It is. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of interesting to see like... Because we're so, um, these mythologies around werewolves and vampires have become such a part, such a trope, you know, such a mm-hmm. kind of cliche that it's kind of interesting to see a sort of reinterpretation of that mythology. Yeah. So I've never seen Born on Christmas Day making you a werewolf as a thing. No. Um, and yeah, so he does grow up to be a werewolf and that's where it kind of gets really tragic because he falls in love, but then, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's not able to suppress his urges, which again, werewolf trope, um, and it all ends very tragically. But I don't think we should spoil it just in case people haven't seen it no. and they do want to go and watch it. <laughs> yeah, it deals, I mean, it, it's very much playing on what we would now consider, I think, to be very um, dangerous and outdated ideas. Because we're told early on that, as I think the priest tells them that as long as he is loved, then he'll be okay. Like the love of a good person will mm. will help to tame those animal urges that he has when he's a kid. Plus, they put bars on his window because he's been going out and killing sheep. And uh, oh yeah, and this film has got a great cast. So Warren Mitchell, he's like the local wolf hunter who has to keep the sheep safe. And so this kid has been getting out at night and killing local sheep and goats and making Warren Mitchell very upset. So they put bars on the window to stop him. But then, like you said, so then he becomes Oliver Reed and he wants to leave home and he goes to get it. He goes and ends up working in a wine cellar back in the town where his mother came from. Um, But again, it's this idea that he'll be fine as long as he's loved. And so he starts turning into a werewolf again when he's in this town. Uh, He kills... um, He's at a bar and he ends up killing his friend and killing a woman who, in all the descriptions I've read, it says she's a prostitute, which I think seems a bit harsh, but you can read it as that, I think, possibly. But then he uh, he falls in love with the daughter of the wine merchant. She's engaged to somebody else. 
she's played by Catherine Feller, who introduced. I haven't been able to do this for a little while, but going back to the who oh my god, met, do you have a do you have a Catherine Feller story? I have met Catherine Feller, so there you go. <laughs> have you? Are you going to tell us your Catherine Feller story? Is that the story? Is you you met? Yeah. <laughs> I went to I went to a Curse of Frankenstein reunion event at it was a fiftieth. 50th anniversary of Curse of Frankenstein at Bray Studios back in 2007. And she was there signing autographs as well as a bunch of, it was like pretty much every Hammer person that was still alive mm. apart from Christopher Lee was there that day. It was very cool. Yeah. Um, Sounds it. But anyway, so yeah, so Catherine Feller. So she, um, so she sits with him because he knows by this point, he knows what he is and he realizes that because she loves him, and she stayed with him all night. She can tame his problem. So the solution is they've got to get married straight away and run away together. But it just made me think about that what we're saying is this is a very dangerous man. Mm. But if you as a woman stay with him and love him really well, then you can tame him. Yeah. I mean, it's massively problematic, but I think yeah. like it links back to the Victorian Gothic thing in that mm. it's kind of Byronic, this idea of the dangerous yes. man and the woman's love. It's like, it's, you find that villain in Jane Eyre, you find That's that, true. you find that, um, you find that kind of character again and again. Um, and there's something within like, it's not, it, I mean, you could see it as this is a really sort of, this is an issue. This is a trope that plays into all these myths, you know. Um, mm. At the same time, uh, there is like a way of seeing women's engagement with Victorian literature and novels and this particular character, the dangerous sort of Heathcliff-esque character, mm. um, as being something that's actually quite uh, enjoyable and pleasurable to kind of engage with those storylines and that character. So there's a kind of two-part, this is a problem, and also... This is also why we find this stuff interesting. Yeah, I think I'm. I I can maybe say that I don't know, <laughs> but it's quite this. This yeah, the dangerous man um, is quite yeah. an interesting figure and also a really quite problematic one. And yeah. I think yeah, Ollie Reed is very much that. Even like in other roles, he is very much the like he's got this animalistic, repressed oh, yeah. um, thing. I don't know if what he was like in real life, but on screen oh, that definitely comes worse. across. And he is like the best person to play a character like yeah. that. <laughs> well, I mean, we only have to think about, of course, um, Bill Sykes in Oliver mm. as being the ultimate. I mean, again, oh yeah, and in that film, he's got Nancy. But he's incredibly dangerous. Like, yeah, he's the brute. Like, yeah. definitely. But apparently, by all accounts, he was he was pretty wild in real life, too. Obviously, there are lots of famous stories of him um, drinking and fighting. And so, yeah, I think there was a story. I'm sure there was a story. I should have looked this up. I'm sure that when his his wife left him at one point, and he just cut everything in half with a chainsaw. Whoa. I might have misread that, but so he's not—he's not having to reach very far for this. No, <laughs> and and then of course he died in a bar in Malta while he was making Gladiator, and he was trying to outdrink some sailors, uh-huh. uh, and drank him, just drank himself to death in the bar. So yeah, he was—he didn't have—it didn't take much mm. for him to bring that sort of wildness out on screen, which, and it, and he is—he's very magnetic in this mm. movie. Yeah. Yeah, like you said that day he's he's dangerous but quite alluring. Yeah. I suppose. Yeah. And I think yeah, that's um it's a kind of a cliché character but it works 
like his performance and what he brings to it really kind of makes it work quite well, I think. Yeah. But of course, being a, a goth, I suppose, being a doomed gothic romance, it's not really a spoiler to say that things don't work out for the werewolf. I mean, pretty much every werewolf film ever ends with somebody killing the werewolf. But the 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 design of it, the set, the the shoot is really great. There's a whole sort of rooftop chase that's like sort of parkour at one point. Mm-hmm. The werewolf is fleeing across the roof of the town, and there's a big sequence in a bell tower um it's it's pretty well done and the makeup yeah. what do you think what do you think of the makeup i always like uh werewolf transformations like i have mm. a kind of list of my favorite werewolf transformations <laughs> and they're not always the ones that you'd expect but i i find it really interesting how they do that with uh mm. vfx and makeup and how what the variations on the werewolf transformation are so what what are your favorites what's your list okay number one is uh kind of overplayed but it's an american werewolf in london duh mm-hmm. um yeah. number two would be uh the company of wolves oh yeah um and number three again not what you would expect but there's a tv series called hemlock grove which was kind oh, of yeah. a netflix thing which wasn't really that great but there is an amazing werewolf transformation where a character turns into a werewolf and you know they actually shed the human skin and then eat it <laughs> the werewolf eats the skin he's just shed. He eats like his own face. It's really, it's really grotesque. But like I thought, very, very well done for a horror film, a horror series. Do they then transfer back into a human again? Like, how does that work? I don't really know the specifics of it, but I just thought it was very cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I always pay attention to that, and uh, mm. yeah, I like to see how these things are done. I love, yeah, and I love the one in Amer- American Werewolf just because yeah. it's like the pain. You see the pain, and you also see like the elongation of his features yeah, and everything. And then yeah. Bad Moon Rising is playing, which is just perfect. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose because before before American Werewolf, the tradition way of doing it as we see in this film is through um kind of you know adding a little bit more makeup shooting a few frames adding a bit more makeup shooting a few more frames and then doing a series of dissolves and that was how they did the universal mm-hmm. wolf man and i'm pretty sure that's how they do this one but the makeup is very unique looking in in so in the terms of werewolves it's much better i've always thought the universal lon cheney jr werewolf is rubbish he just looks like a cuddly teddy bear. I think. <laughs> There's nothing slightly scary about that werewolf. But I think this one is very unique looking. And again, he's quite Byronic. Like you said, he's got his white shirt kind of ripped open, mm. revealing his hairy chest. And he's got the, the teeth and he's got red eyes. I mean, it, yeah. like it, must have been, it must have been quite painful. I was reading something about the makeup and they even put wax. Um, they basically put candlesticks up his nose to, to flare out his nostrils. Ooh. And he's got like red contacts in and stuck all this fire all over him. It, oh, it looked like it was very uncomfortable. Yeah. But, um, but Ol- yeah. Oliver Reed was young enough to not care. <laughs> he just, just go for it. Yeah, I'm just looking at um, the images of him as the werewolf. I mean, it's all right. And I think I really like your point about the Byronic hero because he absolutely is, isn't he? That that yeah. ripped white shirt. Um, and he still retained his like masculine man form, but he's also mm-hmm. quite hairy. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he's very brutish. By complete coincidence, I didn't do this on purpose, but I just realised I'm wearing my Hammer Films t-shirt today, which is, uh, nobody can see this at home, but I have got a Curse of Frankenstein Ooh, and Dracula t-shirt. Nice. I know. Um, it's 
bit sad. But anyway, um, the so yeah, we should mention that Curse of the Werewolf is one of the Hammer Gothics that was directed by Terence Fisher, who um, he made quite a lot of films, but he's mainly known for the Gothics that he did for Hammer. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, because of Curse of Frankenstein, kickstarted the whole thing because it was the first one in the first gothic horror in color. And then he did Dracula and then Revenge of Frankenstein, How the Baskervilles and the Mummy, a whole load of them. Um, and so this one fitted in just after he'd done I think, Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll, which I really love. And then he did The Phantom of the Opera. And so he was, although he did do other things, interesting things as well, like Island of Terror. Um, a night of the big heat which is quite a fun sci-fi one i think he will ever forever be associated with the gothics he sort mm-hmm. of created that look and that style that hammer then really went to town with and other yeah. directors came in and kind of did other ones that were almost there but not quite as good mm-hmm. and there's there's a really great biography that just came out recently published by fab press called Terence Fisher, Master of Gothic Cinema, which is huge. So um, I have it and I've started reading it, but I mean, I'm not even close to uh, the Curse of the Werewolf page yet. That's uh, okay. I mean, we should say that we're not being sponsored by the author of that book to sell it, no, but if it's good, no, then yeah. If you'd like to, that'd be good. <laughs> if you'd like to, but yeah, right. But obviously, um, and I'm sure we'll talk about this with Kieran, there's a lot of books out there about Hammer. Um, it's such a well-trod. Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, you know, I kind of feel sorry for anyone doing research on Hammer because there's yeah. just so much stuff to to kind of read and go yes. through. And this, what's great for Kieran is that he's found another aspect of it that people haven't already done a book on. Oh, yeah. Which is really good. It's totally original. <laughs> there are so many Hammer books, and I've got several of them myself. Yeah. And I used, I used to go to Hammer events quite frequently, um, up until about 10 years ago, I think was the last one I went to. There's a whole world of Hammer fandom out yeah. there. Yeah, and there's a whole um, intersection between Hammer fandom and Hammer scholarship as well. Yeah. Like it's very, the blinds are very blurred between those two things. Yeah, I mean, I and I started out, I was a Hammer fan. I did an OU degree um, and I was writing essays about Hammer. And that was mm. like the beginnings of my sort of academic decision to go on and embark on an academic career was writing essays about Hammer. Wow, that's and I'm nice. sure a lot of I'm sure a lot of other Hammer fans turned academics probably yeah. did the same thing. Yeah, I know I can think of a couple, yeah. yeah. Um <laughs> and uh yeah, no I'm I'm not I wasn't being like insulting. I was like I can I can genuinely just think of a couple of people who've maneuvered into yeah. academia from uh, yeah. writing more commercial stuff on Hammer. Mm-hmm. And vice versa. Um, so, yeah, I mean, shall we ask Kieran about his work then? Let's bring Kieran on and find out more about Shadow Cinema. You know, it will soon be the 25th. 25th? Of December. You know what that means. Well, the 25th is always on Christmas Day. Well, then. Christmas Day is always on the 25th. <laughs> of course, if you're going to make fun of me. No, I'm not making fun of you. I don't understand. What's the matter? What's worrying you? What worries me is that the girl upstairs is about to have her baby. And as like as not, it'll be born on the very hour of our Lord's birth. Surely that should be a reason to rejoice. For an unwanted child to be born then is an insult to heaven, senor. That's what I was taught. In the village where I come from, the girls stay away from the men in March and April. Just in case. Let's pray the little child is born too soon. 
Or too late. Otherwise... <laughs> Don't worry. We'll have it born exactly to suit you. Oh. <laughs> Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Kieran Foster. Uh, so I met Kieran at De Montfort University uh, when he was doing his PhD on unmade Hammer films. Is that right? Yes, unmade yeah, Hammer films. Which is yeah. really cool. Your book is just uh, the Shadow Cinema book edited collection mm, yeah. is just out. So. Um, you're a co-editor of this book on essentially shadow cinema is uh, unmade films. Is that right? Or films yeah, that have yeah. Yeah, films that were in development, but never made. Um, mm-hmm. So hasn't that, that's kind of just come out recently, hasn't it? Yeah. So that, yeah, I co-edited that with um, James Fenwick and, and, and David Elridge. And it's a, came out, God, I mean, it feels, yeah, it would November, 2020. So it would have been about a year now. And it's, um, it is basically a collection of, uh, really, really interesting chapters on unmade films and also kind of even just sometimes unreleased, unseen and that kind of thing and trying to kind of mm-hmm. discuss that notion. We have everything from kind of unmade Yorkshire Ripper movies to unmade uh, Alice in Wonderland and unmade uh, Hammer, who's obviously me. And, um, and we have a really good eclectic collection of, of essays because it's a it's a great kind of subject and it's got, obviously mm. there's lots of juicy, interesting things. So it was just a way of trying to collect them all into one volume to start cool. with. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those great what if questions, isn't it? Whenever you hear mm. about film projects that never quite came together, they always seem to sound like they were going to be the greatest film in the world. Yeah. When, <laughs> when yeah. often I'm sure the reality probably would have been that they weren't. Yeah. Peter Hutchins, the uh, late great Peter Hutchins, mentions that. He has a great chapter in a book called Sights and Scene where he's talking about an unmade Hammer film called night creatures which i will 100 percent mention again he says the exact <laughs> same thing he says there is this inclination when discussing unmade projects to say like this is going to be this would have been the best thing ever it's exactly mm. that issue and it can come put blinders on you but it can also mean that it's helpful because these things stay alive in fandoms and, and circles and and sometimes you know as, as uh, the archive is a incredible resource um for academics and researchers but also just online fandom can keep these projects mm. in the in the um in the kind of view and it's like it's hypothetical like if you can imagine it's imaginary right it exists in the yeah. realms of imagination so of course they're the best films ever <laughs> exactly and particularly with a company like hammer you've got though you know you don't have to worry about the budget and you know potentially shonky effects you can read vampirella as this big sci-fi epic when in reality you know it's yeah it would not have been something that would have looked like Star Wars. So, uh, yeah, there's lots of interesting kind of ways you can you can make them feel better than they potentially would have been, yeah. but that's kind of half the fun. When I first heard about unmade films at Shadow Cinema, I thought mm-hmm. it sounds like counterfactual history, as in what if, what if history, you know, mm-hmm. the histories that didn't happen, like, you know, those things you see on Channel 5 about Hitler's wallpaper or like what if the Germans had won and all that <laughs> yeah, stuff. But it's, like, yeah. it's not, it's not because it's actually development, isn't it? Because these films mm. got to development, a lot of them, but didn't get to production. Um, so therefore, it's still mm. actually, you know, it's about, isn't it kind of more about kind of the, the development process that can probably give yeah. us really good insights into that, right? That's the whole point. Of, mm. Yeah, the whole point of that book is to try and say like, you cannot do film history without, the um, unmade film because there's such a huge amount of economic and creative labor Mm -hmm. that goes into these projects that don't get made hammer is 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 the one of the best examples in terms of british um cinema at the time because i think it's i mean again i am um i think it's between 1975 and 1979 that they make 
two films, mm-hmm. um, To the Devil, a Daughter, and uh, The Lady Vanishes. Uh, and if you look at those two movies, and, and if you're doing a film-by-film chronological history of Hammer, yeah, uh, and you just get to 75 and 79, suddenly there's this huge drop-off, and you don't you don't get the full picture, because that's the time they're making trying to make things like Nessie, Vampirella, these, and they're spending so much money on these hugely ambitious, ultimately unmade projects. So if you mm-hmm. don't include them as a key part of that history then it is a lack. It is something yeah. that is missing. So yeah, it is. It's absolutely a part of kind of a more holistic understanding of of industry um, and screen industries generally. And I think um, same for telly um, yeah. as well. So it is, yeah, I understand completely. There is, I mean, there's these fantastic books that come out with like, what if style, like posters, you know, yeah. like here's a poster we've made up for Steven Spielberg's Night Skies. <laughs> Um, here's what it could have been and that is almost like that counterfactual here's a world where that happened and not E.T. Mm. but you can absolutely apply this kind of research to just uh, trying to fill in the fill in the lines of some kind of yeah. great production companies yeah and it's so useful like it was give you such an insight about the industry um, yeah yeah definitely a company like Hammer like I say there's been so much written on Hammer reams and reams stuff on hammer so to be able to actually go and go actually this is a this is a kind of new or yeah, this is brand a, a, new, at least it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah at least like a bit different um to to um the already great scholarship on there is is nice uh, and mm. there's so like i say there's so many ways it can be applied as the shadow cinema book has some amazing essays by um i don't think mine comes in like the top 12 of the like 11, <laughs> 11 we have uh, amazing collection. Um, so yeah, it's like I say it's something I'm still even after the PhD excited about, which I think is a it puts me in a very small group <laughs> of people who don't just want to burn it and walk away. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing stuff. I I think I've met you a few times at various mm-hmm. film things, Kieran. And you, I was at a presentation you gave at uh, some like an archive day mm. at De Montfort a couple of years ago, where you brought some of the elements that you had from the archive for us to have a look at, which was as a Hammer yeah. fan, as a lifelong Hammer fan, was pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, and obviously it seemed like a lot of the stuff, like you mentioned Van Perella already mm. and, the, and the Nessie project. And there was the, uh, the, the film that another one that sounds like it would have been amazing, but probably would have been terrible, which was pterodactyls versus Zeppelins or yeah. Zeppelins versus pterodactyls. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, and there was, a, there was a, there was another, um, Dennis Wheatley one at the time was it Toby Jug? Uh, yes, Haunting of Toby Jug, Jug and the Satanist, I think as well. So these were sort of seventies projects. Was there anything in the archive from earlier unmade Hammer films? Because we do know, obviously, and particularly in relation to Curse of the Werewolf, that there were early, much earlier projects that fell by the wayside good question you... it's a good question and i actually i'm very very relieved i can answer it i've come correct um <laughs> so yeah there's two to put to contextualize curse of the werewolf in the unmade stuff is um there's two big projects and it's one in 1958 and that's night creatures and that richard that's richard matheson's self-adaptation of i am legend mm. and then there is uh the rape of sabenity which is retitled uh, the inquisitor which is the big one for Curse of the Werewolf because it has an actual tangible effect mm-hmm. um, on the film. But there is those two, are the, because obviously Hammer in that period, and in this period, they're kind of strutting their stuff. Like they're, they're not in a period, they make everything they want to get made, it's getting made. People want to work with them, you know? So the reason that inversion happens in the 70s is because of, you know, like I say Laura's, um, you know, co edited collection, the uh, Transformation British Cinema kind of 
the, 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 all this kind of great stuff that's happening in the 60s. And then obviously everyone leaves. The party's over in the 70s. Um, and what's interesting there is that Hammer relies so much on American funding that when America pulls out of, of Britain, that just inverts completely. So as you can imagine, 50s and 60s, quite a lot less of the unmade stuff. You know, they're walking in with a Tom Chantrell poster. They're putting it up there. They're saying, how, how good is this? And, and people are going, yep. Chris Lee, Dracula, yeah, so, you know, open kind of open book kind of job. Uh, I'm oversimplifying, but um, <laughs> and then by by the time it gets to the literally by the seventies, nineteen seventy, you can see there's a lot more unmade things going in there um, for many reasons. Uh, Michael Carreras takes over Hammer in seventy two, and he takes what Marcus Hearn immortally described as a shit or bust strategy, which is to go big or go home. Like find a blockbuster movie like a Nessie, like a Vampirella, a four-quadrant thriller kind of thing that'll get in audiences across the globe. So that means obviously if you're mounting these big, big productions, you don't you don't end up with um you know financing becomes difficult and that's the millstone around their neck. In the late 50s and 60s, the millstone around Hammer's neck is censorship. Mm. So the Inquisitor and Night Creatures and Curse of the Werewolf are probably uh, if you're talking on made and made are probably the three key films you could look at and really see the the kind of blood and guts spilled in the fight between Hammer and uh, the BBFC at the time. Um, so if there is finance is the thing in the seventies, but in this period it's censorship. Mm. Yeah. And um, Curse of the Werewolf uh, wasn't there like a censorship issue? Uh, like, can you say more about the kind of censorship issue behind that film? Sure. Um, yeah. Because yeah, I mean, wasn't it like quite heavily cut? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was. I think it's. It doesn't sound significant, but I think it was at least five minutes of cuts. And this is for, for the film itself. Uh, there's, mm. um, I'm just looking now at uh, Wayne Kinsey's excellent uh, book because he has some great quotations from BBFC, the Bray Studio years. Um, and what I think happens is, Curse of the Frankenstein. Curse of Frankenstein gets away with some of the stuff in it, and it got you know there was a few cuts that had to be made. Because it was kind of a very new thing. <laughs> when when the censor realised Hammer were in this for the long haul, you end up with a lot more weariness. And I think there's a great, great thing here. Okay, yeah, so John Trevelyan uh, here on, an, on a note to uh, Tony Hines. And this is the first script that Tony Hines wrote as well for, mm. for Hammer. Uh, he says, this is the head of the BBFC at the time, mm-hmm. there is some imaginative writing in the first few pages and I had high hopes that this would be a superior werewolf story for those who like these things, when we came to the haunting and brutalising of the beggar, his life in chains and the rape of a dumb-serving wench, I thought we had a candidate for rejection. When we got into the darkest forest of gothic horror, I was on familiar ground following the well-beaten track of the Hammer X. So like mm. that, this is already a thing that they know. And he does it again. A week later, he says to Tony Hines, we have now read your script and titled The Curse of the Werewolf. The, critic will say, the critics will say, Hammer at it again. Mm. Uh, or something like this and then he notes the cuts he wants to be made so there's clearly already this suspicion mm. at, the, at the sensor that okay these guys aren't just gonna do curse of frankenstein and then make like low budget crime thrillers this is gonna be a thing yeah and you have peeping tom mm. which comes out and um again i would absolutely defer to you guys on, on, on that <laughs> uh but it obviously the sensor really panics and um yeah. and that becomes a huge issue and i genuinely believe and i think hern kinsey and p- people like that kind of agree and know in there but that peeping tom has a knock-on effect on hammer yeah uh, I, and, and and yeah the werewolf. i totally agree mm-hmm. it has a knock-on effect of a lot on a lot of things yeah. um yeah. and 
yeah, that that disgusted critics. I mean, I think we kind of overblow the Peeping Tom stuff. I think we think mm-hmm. about it as being bigger than it actually was, but it was actually yeah. a big issue. <laughs> it did, yeah. did yeah. cause a panic, didn't it? Absolutely. You have to find yeah. that middle ground, right, between yeah. it wasn't as bad as it was, still pretty bad. Still bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The BBFC really did think of themselves as a buffer between um, the film industry and the world and this mm-hmm. kind of moral outrage. And they really felt they were doing Hammer a favour, I think, because of all the public outcry that they, the BBFC themselves had been the butt of some of that for Peeping Tom, I think, because they'd allowed it because of who the filmmaker was. Mm. And so they, I don't think the BBFC had expected quite such a a backlash. And so they were keen to avoid anything like that again, I guess. Yeah. You can tell from that it's, it's always collegial and like the letters to each other. There's never anyone saying, you know what, shove your film or, you know, you're not doing this. There is, um, it's always quite, yo, yes, of course, we'll do this. We fully agree, Mr. Trevelyan, um, we'll do this, we'll do that. Um, and obviously, sometimes they never do, sometimes they do. Um, but I think this was the first time that it damaged the film. Like, mm. it, it, they took lumps out of it. And it was a fight. And the thing is, that what you have to remember is they took lumps out of it in terms of cutting it. But this was from script stage. They, had a, they were fighting from script stage with this film. And it was... It was a brutal fight and it really mm. took it out of Hammer. And I think Hammer knew they'd been in a fight. And uh, unlike kind of things like Curse of Frankenstein, where it was like, Oof, well, they told us to cut that and we cut that, but we got away with this. Look at that. Yeah. This, I think they it, it damaged the film. I think that's a fairly non-controversial statement to say. Mm. Um, and it actually led to the departure of Michael Carreras from it because of things that affected it. So there's this whole... There's a, I think the reason they didn't do a werewolf movie again was because this didn't set the box office on fire, but they all probably was had PTSD, I imagine. It's a, it's a really rough production. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seemed to sort of spell the end of that golden age of the Terence Fisher gothics. Obviously, we'd had Frankenstein and Dracula and The Mummy. Yeah, Jekyll, it stops Jekyll the run. Hyde. It stops the run, for sure. They are, they're on a hot streak until then. Mm-hmm. Then they they get into their psychological thrillers a bit more, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, in the when you've done your archival work with with the the script archive, mm-hmm. did that include scripts like the earlier drafts of scripts? Like, for example, this one obviously was there was there were versions of the script before they got to the final script. Is that something yeah. that you have access to, or are those lost? Yeah, forever? well, I, I wouldn't want to say lost because Hammer. There is a thing with Hammer where a lot of the scripts actually are just with collectors and fans who were there mm. at the time. Uh, and Michael Carrera is obviously, I know for a fact, he's just sometimes said, "Here's some scripts to certain historians that he trusts." Certainly, in terms of the archive, we don't have an early. Well, they don't. I don't. I don't. I don't work there anymore. That's a force of habit. Uh, mm. But they, uh, the Hammer archive, does not have a earlier draft of this script. They have mm. an, another script by Michael Carreras called The Werewolves of Morovia, which suggests that he was okay. He was looking at doing a more direct werewolf movie again. Mm. It's not a sequel. It's a separate thing. Um, but they definitely... So they have that in the archive. Craig uh, Ian Mann's book, Phases of the Moon, actually has a really nice summary of that and what it is. Um, but essentially, there's nothing in the archive that is an earlier draft of this to suggest you know like the pre because there is absolutely a pre-draft um i think it's just called the werewolf it started off as maybe mm. um by tony hines um so sadly i haven't read it no. tony hines did write another werewolf script eventually didn't he which was similar to this one um which became legend of the werewolf yeah, legend yeah. Of the werewolf, yeah. it's a funny one i mean the reptile uh, as we mentioned just off off, off pod was is definitely 
uh, a werewolf movie, mm. <laughs> um, but obviously has a lot of different elements involved. Mm. Uh, but no, I, I genuinely think they were um, they were very very bruised from this. I mean, the mm. night creatures, which is the one Peter Hutchins wrote a really great uh, article for for Dan North's edited collection, Sights Unseen. Peter Hutchins, and it was the one thing that made me go like, oh man, this is like the one piece of work that is on unmade, academic piece of work, it's on unmade hammer. And it's it's amazing, it's it's great. And it's um and it's really covers it well. But that just they got shut down. Like they got Richard Matheson to self-adapt his own script for Hammer. It is a contemporary set, bleak character drama with and it, it's it's honestly, it's the one hammer. As, like unmade script because I do the same thing. I try and temper expectations. It is a mm. great script. I think it's a really, really good script. And they sent it off to the censor, basically being like, "Okay, tell it. You know, there'll be a few things we have to change. Just tell us what they are." And the censor just said, "It's just rejected it outright. Just completely no." And I always think that, in terms of um, that counter his counterfactual history thing, Laura said mm. that would have probably come out around the same time of, as Dracula. And I would have loved, you know, a contemporary, modern day, bleak. A dystopian uh, vampire film next to this kind of gothic piece mm. would have been very, very yeah. interesting. But yeah, that was the start of this kind of, well, certainly the one of the major blows to the sen- in terms of the censorship. I mean, it is kind of Hammer doing it at it again, if you like, Chris the Werewolf, but it's also not in the, like, there are it's a gothic horror, but it's also a fairy tale. It's also a mm. melodrama. It's also a tragedy. It's also got this very human tragic storyline. And mm. um, yeah, it's it's Hammer, but also they're branching out. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I just wonder what could have been on the counterfactual end, you know, if they'd been, if it'd been well received, because it has, has like, I think retrospectively, its legacy is that it's pretty well received, but at the time, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think so. I quite like it. Do you guys like it? I don't know if I know likes a subjective term. I really like it. But yeah, absolutely. It's a yeah. classic. Yeah, I think it is good, and I think it is. It's, it is. It's ambitious. I think it does do that love story thing pretty well. It yeah. does have a, a heart at its center. There's stakes. There's some great imagery in it, mm. like on mm-hmm. top of that roof with the hay bale. <laughs> There's some just some really good stuff in it, and it um, um and I, it does get forgotten because it's as films do that are not commercially or critical uh, success hammer didn't want didn't need to feel the need to try and resuscitate its reputation or, or do anything with it because it was a stumbling block on an extraordinarily successful run you know mm. like just why we don't need to you know if that didn't work never mind we've got a dracula sequel i mean they didn't we've got frankenstein sequel or brides of dracula ready to go there's no need to um to kind of stop and think what went wrong so mm. i think it just gets lost in the shuffle because of that and of course it does follow an incredible <laughs> uh, triptych of like frankenstein dracula yeah. mummy which is yeah. kind of a classic but yeah no i, I really like it i think it, it's it's really sweet it's, it's nasty when it needs to be it's got dirt under its fingernails it's got ollie reed um, ollie reed yeah, it's my my help. it's a unique selling point for me i'll be honest <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, he is great isn't he he's mm-hmm. so good he and he was only he's only twenty two, I think, in that film. <laughs> Such presence for someone who's twenty two. Yeah, that is mad. I didn't know that. I could have. I had never done the maths on that. Oh, he's bananas! But so, an yeah. actor of that caliber really helps some of the kind of more earnest material. I think, and he's mm. intense. He's proper intense as well. He's taking it deadly, deadly seriously, and and there's yeah. his conviction and, and intensity, and the eyes. 
a very very good, expressive under the makeup, which you know is I think it's it's lesboy. Um, again, and, and that kind of I think it's cool creature design. I like the, the top still on, like the the white kind of yeah. <laughs> blousey top still going. Um, yeah, there's so much in it that works, and it, it's it's a shame that I think sometimes maybe it's it, the history of its production can um, can maybe suggest a, a you know not all films that are good have mm. that torturous mm. a production. It sometimes suggests it's like that thing where people get in their heads when people say, "Oh, a film had to go for reshoots." People uh-huh. think bad as opposed to you know just a part of production yeah Yeah. and of course when we watch the film now we're watching it in its full uncut version so we're seeing the stuff that wasn't you know that didn't get through the bbfc yeah um so the critical reaction from the british critics you know some of them were just you know they kind of said it was boring was, was what i saw um but of course it was because if you take all the horror out what you're left with is a kind of morose love story where not a lot really happens. Yeah. And so, it, but it's different. It's a different experience for us now to watch it uncut. So we're not seeing the same film, I suppose. No, you're right. Yeah. I get, yeah. I say, and I mean, even America got, a, at the time, got a much, um, a much less censored version uh, mm. of it. Um, and, and it's just a, yeah, like I say, it, you, they're watching it at the time. All the kills are censored. The three kills in the film are censored. It's, and apparently, I mean, I think this is Dennis Meikle mentions that the cuts were not subtle. Like we're not talking cut around the action. We're talking like audio bits of audio just dropping out and in, like jump cuts mm. put in there. They they, they butchered it. <laughs> um, uh, you know the irony. Well, um, so I think yeah, I think it, you know it might actually have affected its cohesiveness as well, mm. which is again a shame. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier on about the um, the fact that there was another film in mm. pre-production um called the inquisitor or the, yeah. the rape of sabina mm-hmm. have you have you has your research included looking at that one is there anything you can i can yeah i'm just gonna um he says pulling up his notes so the rape of sabina uh is in the archive that is held oh, in the okay. archive wow. uh, and it's a really interesting movie it's not at all a um hot hammer horror it's it's uh and actually actually that put off a few uh columbia in particular were not happy uh, with the fact that they'd just done this deal with Hammer and two of their movies, um, Curse of the Werewolf, which obviously ran into trouble, and The Rape of Sabena ran into trouble, and that caused quite a lot of friction. So it's a period piece. Uh, it has elements of exploitation, uh, but this, Columbia were never happy with it at all, and they were building sets for it. Uh, this is, again, from Hearn and, and Kinsey mainly, because the, the, thing, the only thing the archive has, again, I'm talking to two people who feel this pain, the archive has the script, and that's it. So mm-hmm. there's these huge gaps in terms of what was happening. I would love to have got confirmation that those um, sets were built for the Inquisitor and then not because um, I've never seen like a, a piece of documentation, although Hearn uh, obviously was Hammer's historian. So they built these sets for this Spanish set Inquisition drama. The plug gets pulled and two things happen. The first is that Michael Carreras leaves Hammer. He sets up his own product project. So he is a, a key part of Hammer. He would eventually take over from his dad in 72. Um, but and he he's... went off to Spain, didn't he? Ironically. He did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he went off to Spain and did the, the Savage Guns uh, and a few others and kind of, you know, cut his teeth as, as a director. Um, and then, yeah, the sets were built. So they basically incorporated 
some of the sets of the Inquisitor into the Curse of the Werewolf, which is why it is Spanish <laughs> mm. <laughs> for uh, reasons uh, to kind of build it in. The novel is the Werewolf of Paris, isn't it? So yeah. The original story is French. Mm. Yeah, and apparently the dungeon set was made for Inquisitor. Obviously, the beginning sequence in particular, um, and and a lot of the uh, kind of exterior shots you see in the, when he goes on the the mini rampage. Um, yeah, so apparently they just pulled the plug on that entirely because and Columbia lost confidence in Michael Carreras apparently because of the the slate that they were suggesting, which was not what they'd signed up for after your Frankenstein's mm. in particular. Yeah. And do we know who they were going to cast in that or anything like that? Is there? Any... I don't. And this is this is again. I just struggle to because I can't. I've never found any archival documentation on the project that has a. And I'm thinking if you're building sets, you must be fairly down the line. Mm. Uh, but I can't find any confirmation. And again, it's mainly it mainly is because it was not again not the focus of my research this period. My period focuses on the 70s. It's okay. Unmade Hammer, so I absolutely know, and, I, and like uh, Night Creatures, I, I know a fair bit about it and the mm-hmm. story around it, but I've never gone on a major hunt for these materials. Um, I know the you know the, the Spanish sets were, were there. It does seem to me that why would you set Werewolf in Paris in Spain unless maybe you had those sets and Hammer were incredibly economical, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, and it's absolutely true that they pulled the plug basically at the same time as this was going into production, a fast tracked in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it just it just did not uh, did not happen, and it was another blow for Hammer and, and their relationship with Columbia at the time. I do kind of feel your your pain, Kieran, there with the archive <laughs> stuff because just just thinking about the amount of paper that gets generated at production and reception and contract contracts and legals and all of that stuff mm. gets generated and companies keep it right but i imagine with projects that don't come to fruition at various stages they're not necessarily going to keep that <laughs> why would you yeah, absolutely why why would you so i mean i i especially i yeah i think your your job must be difficult <laughs> <laughs> yeah sometimes i mean hammer hammer obviously is also and it's happened again recently has been sold and bought so many times there, there will just be this clear out, clear in, and what survives will be, you know, it up to the gods. I know my um, Marcus Hearn has, has has got reams of notes on, on on documentation correspondence on stuff that doesn't exist anymore, that probably got shredded or at least thrown out. Uh, and he just by having his notes as a kind of you know a fastidious archival historian at the time. Mm-hmm. He's actually salvaged a lot of stuff and helped me greatly with, um, particularly on the Dracula in India projects. But mm. oh, Dracula in India—that is so good. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. I really—that's that's one of the films I'd have loved to have seen. Yeah, the Unquenchable Thirst of Dracula script is yeah yet another one that is actually a pretty, very, very solid Dracula script for that time. Yeah, um, though I heard the radio adaptation that yeah. Mark Gatiss did that was really, really good. Yeah, Stephen Shiel and Chris Cook did a uh, a great live reading of it at the Mayhem Festival in 2015. Literally, oh, right. just as I started the PhD, they had worked on it, so they were kind of the one, they were they pre- preceded me in doing like a production of um, the Unmade, uh, and they did a big live script script reading with Jonathan Rigby as the narrator, and they had a sitar and and a really cool poster for it as well, and it went down really really well because it's it's a good script, it's a long script, mm. but it's a good good solid Dracula script. Um, and yeah, they, uh, they, they that kind of 
that kind of so that archival material just gets sifted and moved and thrown away because we don't need it. The one thing that was amazing was we had we had an actual list. I could have told I could tell you I could have told you at the time how much Hammer were planning to spend on stationery for Vampirella. <laughs> they had the stage. We didn't have a script. That's very we specific. <laughs> but, but we didn't have a script, Laura. We didn't have a script. I couldn't have told you anything about the plot. <laughs> I could have told you exactly how much they were spending on big pens. And that's the kind of thing, isn't it, with these guys? And then they send the script over in a second delivery. And it's like, oh, great. We now have this really kind of holistic picture. But there was a point where I knew the stationary budget, but I didn't know what the film was about. And it's wow. that kind of stuff with material where you, where you, it's in the hands of, of obviously people long ago. Um, but yeah, I, that definitely from what I can gather, and lots of caveats here, but certainly by work done by people like Marcus Hearn and, and uh, Dennis Meikle and Wayne Kinsey, it seems like those sets, of Curse of Frank, uh, Curse of the Werewolf, are uh, originally for the Inquisitor, which was just completely killed uh, at the behest of Columbia, who anticipated a scrap with the sense of it they didn't fancy the going mm-hmm. for. So where does this take you next? You've spent all these years looking at the Hammer archive. Mm-hmm. Do you see your like your future research being in the area of Hammer or being in unmade scripts or are you branching into other areas? Well I'm still knee deep in this in a moment. I've got my I've got a contract for my monograph so I'm doing the book on on unmade hammer for Congratulations. Press. Thank Excellent. you. Yeah, that's due in 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 March. So I'm hoping that will be, you know, and that's coming along okay. You know, he says we have a six month baby in the house. It's coming along along as as well as it can. Mm-hmm. Um, You're making me feel it. bad. I've had a contract for like years for a book. I just like have kept putting off, and I don't even have a baby. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> don't feel too bad. It hasn't been submitted yet, Laura. You know, we could, you know, I could be. Um, could be long gone by the time that, <laughs> that manuscript is even found on my computer but the uh it's kind of getting there slowly um and in it so I, that is where i'm at the moment after that i do actually i love horror um like all horror uh but a neil made scripts but the thing that's taking my kind of i'm looking at at the moment is i'm doing one one thing i have in mind that is completely separate is looking at the um looking at kind of universal uh halloween horror nights as some kind of franchise resurgence thing because I just mm-hmm. used to love those going to them and I think I'm just missing going away places at the moment um, and also I want to look at unmade um, unmade superhero films of the 1990s because I think oh, the wow. 1990s, 1990s is a really fertile point of superhero things when they weren't as kind of hegemonic as they are now yeah. and they weren't the biggest things it was kind of the wild west of that period so I want to look at some of the very, very notable unmade ones. All that like licensing stuff around Marvel, like licensing out characters like Blade and things. That would be quite exactly. interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like James Cameron's in the news recently talking about his 1990s Spider-Man. There's Tim Burton's Superman Lives. Yeah. There's these huge, huge swings uh, in a period where there was just no standard for this movie. You know, you have the 89 Batman and then you have 2000 X-Men. Like what happens in between that period to kind of... Uh, is all kind of up in the air. So I very much, and I think the unmade films will certainly be where I start, but I think it might, I might just maybe look at maybe a wider project on on those, if if I find the stuff I'm hoping to find, that maybe just the 90s comic book era would be an interesting uh, slice of mm-hmm. history to start mm-hmm. with. But, but at the moment, I am, again, I am just all hammer all the time at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> 
Doesn't sound like a bad life. It's not <laughs> I am still a bit infused about it. I'm still really happy and excited to talk about it with you guys. So it's got to be something in that, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. After yeah, a PhD, that. definitely. That's uh, it. it. It never really stopped. It just kind of went straight into trying to find this. But certainly, as the edited collection shows, I'm just interested in unmade stuff. Generally, I say hoping to do a conference next year just to get do the same thing we did with the edited collection, which is to get loads of people in the room talking about unmade stuff because it's mm. such a fascinating oh yes i saw the call for papers for that do you want to tell us a little bit about your intentions of that conference yes sure i'm just going to panically get the cfp up which uh, i have not <laughs> got <laughs> uh but it is um it's it's called uh, shadow screens uh it kind of started a uh, life as a uh, a, a one in, in the before times before the world ended uh and we've kind of adapted it it's me and um james fenwick who was one of the co-editors of shadow cinema book He's based at Sheffield Hallam, mm-hmm. uh, and that's where the conference will be held. We'll also have an online element because we both agree that there is some good stuff about online things. Uh, um, so to have both is what we're going to try and do. Um, we've got Shadow Screens. It's called Unmade, Unseen, Unreleased Films. Uh, it's a two-day conference on the 23rd and 24th of May next year. And the, the, the CFP is open until um, end of January. And we've got two really cool keynotes lined up who... Um, I should I should maybe not say because I don't I haven't confirmed okay. with them, but they're going to be great and it's going to be great. Um, and yeah, just again, just tease it out. That's cool. Yeah, just sure. Tease. Well, I can tell you it's it's based on a um, one of them is from a chapter in the Shadow Cinema book that is phenomenal mm-hmm. and and it will be a really really great day. And again, I just like getting smart people in the room telling me all this really interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, and it'll be and and there is going to be um hopefully it'll be a really really fun couple of days at Sheffield. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, but that CFP is open. So if anyone is listening and has an unmade uh, project that they'd love to speak I mean, I I I will probably like like if I have t- time put something in for that because there's um <laughs> I would love yeah, yeah. There's stuff I want to do around some unmade stuff. That's it. It's just such a good, you know, an article is a huge commitment. Um uh, and some uh, and that kind of thing, but sometimes there's just a paper that have people have kind of gesticulating in the back of their heads that is just so. Just mm. the conference is a really cool opportunity to do it. So mm. the more the more the merrier. We'd love to we'd love to have anyone um, anyone drop us a line on that. Um, but yeah, like I say, I'm really excited. I'm excited for a, confer- a conference in person. He says confidently um, <laughs> in the middle of where we are in May. I'm yeah. excited to see people, but more importantly, I'm just excited to see really cool unmade scholarship. Mm. Yeah. Is this going to, so it seems like um, the idea of unmade cinema is a sort of growing area of academic research then at the moment. Would you, is this the first conference solely based on that, would you say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's not been an international unmade um, conference, I don't think. I think this is certainly, certainly the first one um, to do it on a scale of, of what we're doing, a two day just on unmade mm. stuff um i think so yeah i'm trying to give enough caveats in case i get attacked on, sure. uh, yeah. on academic Twitter. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's interesting to that this is a sort of growing area of, of academic interest i suppose yeah that's it i just like to say it. that's one of my like because i'm doing another editor collection with um james as well on on studying the unmade because i'd love to teach this stuff mm-hmm. like there's you know like that you know a 10-week module on some of these projects would be incredible so we're trying to lay out that. We've got some great collaborators on that, again, as a, as a collection. I'd love to be able to to kind of lay the groundwork on on you know how to teach this stuff. And, it, and by doing that, it's helping me think about that in a more practical, pedagogical manner as well. So, yeah, it is it's a really interesting area of scholarship. And I am doing my 
doing my damnedest to make sure that I can cling on to being a part of <laughs> being a part of it as it as it happens. Yeah. Well, it seems like you've put yourself right at the middle of it all, so I think you'll yeah. be okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, at the moment, I'm definitely stuck in the middle of it all. I don't know, <laughs> seeing if I can hang on for dear life. But yeah, like I said, a conference in particular, I'm really, really excited about. Perhaps we could, could we just finish off by just saying what it is about Hammer that we, that you like? You know, what is it that's, that's sort of, why, you know, why are we still talking about Hammer films all these years later? On, I honestly think it's, it's this amazing cross between genuine innovators and also keen, tight-pocketed businessmen, this Venn diagram that they're all the same thing and it works beautifully. And I think that just encapsulates Hammer perfectly. They have this incredible desire to innovate and push the boundaries while also you know, reusing sets, reusing the same uh, people and, and knowing you know, when something hits, knowing how to latch onto a trend. So I just think they're this perfect um, thing of being this really marketable strict business model-esque company that also produce genuinely innovative, uh, challenging, interesting, um, brilliant movies. And I think that's what, what gets me every time is is the cross-section, how both can exist at the same time and both be true while also feeling a bit paradoxical. Mm. About you, Laura, what, what is it about Hammer for you? Um, I... Oliver Reed. Huh? Oliver Reed. Oliver Reed, yeah. <laughs> so much. No, I, um, I really like... Because when I started uh, researching sort of more 60s cinema, uh, Hammer was one of the companies where I thought I knew what they did. So I was had Hammer gothic horror kind of fixed in my mind. And then I found out that actually it was a part of what they did in that decade. They, were, they did all kinds of films, um, like, you know, some, from swashbucklers to horror to even more sort of contemporary set stuff. Like Never Take Sweets from a Stranger. Was that Hammer? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so they yeah. kind of yeah. like clued me into the fact that actually it's much more complex you know the industry and we have this this memory or idea of what what someone what a brand does but actually in there's more to it than that um mm. so actually I kind of really got into Hammer through their lesser known um like psycho thrillers and things not really through the gothic stuff um so I really love that and I love the history I love the fact that it's like so connected with British national identity and it also has its roots in the Victorian as well. So that's really yeah. appealing to me. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, th- at the same time they were making Curse of the Werewolf, they were making a Bob Monkhouse comedy. So <laughs> yeah. they, were, they were definitely eclectic yes. all the way through. Get you, a, get you a company that can do both. Yeah. <laughs> what, about, what about you, Adrian? What about you? I mean, for me, I'm, I don't remember a time when I wasn't watching Hammer films. My mm. When we got our first video recorder when I was probably about seven and my mum would take me uh, Hammer films that were on on a Friday night and then I'd just spend my Saturday mornings watching Dracula and, um, you know, probably too young. But I just love, <laughs> I've always loved all that stuff. So yeah. for me, Hammer feels like cosy and safe, you mm. know, because it's just, it's, you know, it's like watching your favourite childhood cartoon. But for me, it's just anything from Hammer just gives me those same sorts of feelings I yeah. suppose so on a purely just sort of guttural level it's it's that kind of reaction for me I suppose yeah um but also like everything you've said you know as well as I've got older and I've developed a greater appreciation but hmm. yeah Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing are my guys yeah. 
Yeah, that's basically. Fair. That's great. Yeah, <laughs> I've, 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 okay. I've co-signed. co-signed. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thanks. Thanks so much for yeah, doing thanks, this, Kira. It's really interesting to talk to you about it. Thanks and so can... much for having me. It's lovely to um to talk to like-minded people <laughs> about. Um, yeah. yeah. So thank you so much. Appreciate it. A werewolf. That is what he is, my son. A werewolf is a body with a soul and a spirit that are constantly at war. The spirit is that of a wolf. And whatever weakens the human soul, vice, greed, hatred, solitude, especially during the cycle of the full moon when the forces of evil are at their strongest, these bring the spirit of the wolf to the fore. And in turn, whatever weakens the spirit of the beast, warmth, fellowship, love, raise the human soul. Now, little Leon has no real father or mother, and yet he needs their love and care far more than any normal child. I understand, Father, and I shall do my best to replace that love. I know you will, my son. But is there no cure? Only love. When he's older, he may meet a young girl whom he will love very deeply. But what is more important, she should love him very deeply. Then he may be saved. So we'd like to thank Kieran for uh, taking the time to come and talk to us about his research. And we're looking forward to the book that will hopefully come out at some point soon. Um, I wanted to ask you, Laura, we didn't mention this earlier, but you've had some involvement in a professional capacity with some Hammer Blu-ray releases. Oh, you'd make it sound more impressive than I think it is. <laughs> um, well, yeah, Indicator Powerhouse, a DVD distributor who distribute a lot of kind of horror films and a lot mm-hmm. of uh, more niche releases. Um, they give them great kind of Blu-ray sets with special features. Um, they released, uh, they've been releasing Hammer box sets in volumes and kind of doing all these great interviews and including these special features and all that. Um, and my uh my first uh and i think to this point last experience of being like a talking head on a dvd extra was for a couple of those sets um so i talked about hammer's women so um actresses uh who starred in hammer films that maybe weren't that well known um really kind of delving into um Mm. their backstories and biographies uh so i commented on yvonne monleur i think that's how you pronounce who's (laughs) who's in this movie um yeah i i, can't, I don't oh, no, think it, it wasn't no. yvonne remain i'm getting yeah my um <laughs> yeah i can't uh off the top of my head i can't remember what the release was it i it was the um the racist one. Oh, the terror of the tongues yes yes that was it um <laughs> so i i had a i had a great time making fun of the um the kind of the way they decided to do the accents and to put mm. makeup on these uh, white actors playing, um, you know, this this very sort of uh, cliched oriental stereotype. Mm-hmm. Um, but Yvonne Montler is amazing in that film. So mm. I, uh, I was able to kind of talk about that. Um, and uh, yeah, it was good fun. And then the other one was, uh, I think it was Gwen Watford and it was um, not, again, not really a very well-known Hammer film. Um, it's the Dr. Jekyll one. Oh, yeah. The two faces of yeah. Dr. Jekyll. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, I love that one. 
Yeah, it was interesting. And again, another sort of gothic uh, style mm. horror. Um, so yeah, just, just like little bit of spots. I was very nervous about doing those, uh, talking head <laughs> things. I don't, yeah, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I'm really an on-camera personality. I think I'm more of a, like a podcast person yeah. <laughs> or maybe yeah. even not that. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, it was fun. No, it's very cool though. It is. It's really cool. Yeah. Those indicator box sets are great. Um, if anybody doesn't have those and is curious, definitely check them out because they're really cool. And the the amount of extras are just mm, incredible. It's incredible, yeah. More than I could ever watch in my life. <laughs> There's so many on each film. And what's really great about those is that they are, like you just mentioned, some of the less well-known films are being mm-hmm. included yeah. as well as the really famous ones. Yeah, like I was really pleased that Never Take Sweets from a Stranger got a release on Blu-ray yeah. with extras because that is one of the ones I saw when I first started looking into um, early 60s hammer type stuff and mm. I and it's like the social it's again like we need to look beyond the gothic with hammer they did loads of stuff mm-hmm. and this is a very sort of psychological social realist almost black and white mm. film about child abuse and it's not what you would expect from the hammer wheelhouse but yeah. again it is so fascinating uh, yeah that's a really interesting film we should probably do that film it was it was fascinating yeah we should actually because it was so fascinating to see them to see hammer jumping on the social issue mm. uh bandwagon that filmmakers were doing that in the kind of early 60s like here's a social mm. issue let's really get into it let's do a social yeah. problem film and i think um it was uh one of the uh, james Carreras maybe who said or was it i don't know which which Carreras <laughs> um said um yeah yeah there's a reason we make films that make money we're never doing that again or something yeah. like that like yeah that's our very first yeah. and last social problem film <laughs> yeah. and it's interesting that they um unlike you know they could have tried to fit it in with the sort of kitchen sink british new wave type films which are also highlighting social issues but it's almost i think they were a little bit afraid from a censorship point of view so instead they set it in canada mm. um they didn't want to be accused of saying that this kind of thing happens in this country. So they could sort of remove themselves by one step by saying it's in Canada. But yeah. anyway, that's a film for another time. Let's earmark it though for yeah, next year. Cause I would one. really like to do that. Yeah, that is a good one. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks everybody for listening. We hope you have a great Christmas. I hope I get this episode out before Christmas. Yes. Sorry have a good Christmas everyone <laughs> and or happy new year. If we don't manage to get it out by Christmas. <laughs> Yes. Uh, so thanks everybody for listening. Um, this has been our first year of making these and hopefully we can uh, do it again next year. Yeah. And I just I want to so. say quickly that the only reason we've done an entire year of these is solely because Adrian has like pushed me to <laughs> do, yeah, line up the guests, do the podcast, yeah. find the time, make the time, and also edited them together because I'm hopeless at that. So, yeah. um, so I think it's just, it's so by your will, Adrian, this has happened. <laughs> because if it was left to me, there would have been two episodes and then nothing. So okay. I just want to well, say thank you yeah, for that. Fine. I'm, I'm more than happy to uh, to be involved. Right. Thanks, everybody. And uh, we'll be back next year with more chat about interesting and forgotten movies. You can contact us on Twitter at Second Features or by email, um, secondfeaturespod at gmail.com. I also just found out that we're on this app called Good Pods. Oh, that means we're a good pod then. Yeah. Well, Clearly. Hopefully. <laughs> So um, that's a kind of new social media app where you can follow podcasts and recommend podcasts to other people 
and so on. So if you're on Good Pods already, then do find us and follow us on there and uh, tell people about us. That would be nice. Please do. Okay. Thank you very much. And Merry Christmas. And um, we will be back soon. Merry Christmas. Bye. That'll do. Another smooth ending. Yeah. Oh, we're, getting, <laughs> we're getting better. We're getting better. And stop. <sighs>